Hello and welcome to the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Joseph Farmer, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers, and in this episode we're talking about conspiracy, in particular unlawful means conspiracy, so conspiracy in the civil law. Unlawful means conspiracy appears very much to have come to the fore in recent years, and that's something I want to explore with my guests. I'd also like to look at the practice of bringing and defending conspiracy claims and I'll be asking my guests about their experiences and I hope that they'll be able and willing to share some war stories. I'm delighted to be joined by three distinguished practitioners in the field. Becca Hogan is a partner at Signature Litigation. She has a wide range of experience in commercial disputes and focuses on banking and financial services. She specialises in high-value complex matters, including both high court litigation and arbitration. Becca also advises on regulatory matters, including investigations involving the FCA. Described as stellar and calm and strategic, Becca is recognised as a next-generation partner by the Legal 500 for Banking Litigation. Mary Young is a partner at Kingsley Napley, whose practice covers a wide range of areas. She has particular expertise in civil fraud and asset tracing, as well as claims against professionals. Described as an excellent role model, Mary has advised in cases in all the major offshore jurisdictions. And finally, Derek Dale Casey is a silk at Fountain Court Chambers, who specialises in wide-ranging commercial litigation and arbitration in both the domestic and the international context. Described in the directories as a very talented and effective advocate, Derek is frequently instructed in cases requiring urgent injunctions, freezing and search orders, and is well-versed in conducting group litigation. He also knows a thing or two about civil fraud. Now, I wanted to start with a bit of a brush clearing exercise or maybe a bit of a throat clearing exercise what what do we mean by conspiracy now Mary it's civil law conspiracy not criminal law conspiracy and there's a big difference yeah and I think it it is worth just looking at what criminal conspiracy is because there's quite a difference there and the most interesting point is that criminal conspiracy is about the planning it's about planning to commit a crime. And it's the planning itself, which is the conspiracy rather than the execution. Whereas with civil conspiracy, the combination of actions is, and the causing of damage is, is where we go with civil conspiracy. So it diff- differs because there needs to actually be something happen and some damage caused. It's one of those small but quite interesting distinctions, I think. Yes, but Becca's going to tell us about the elements of unlawful means conspiracy, but where does it fit in private law? So with unlawful means conspiracy, the claimant needs to have suffered loss or damage as a result of unlawful action taken pursuant to a combination or agreement between the defendant and another person or persons to injure them by unlawful means, whether or not it is the predominant purpose. And so that can be distinguished from lawful means conspiracy, where it's essentially an exception to the general principle for economic torts, where there has to have been some wrongful conduct. With lawful means conspiracy, you can have two individuals acting together lawfully, which if they'd done it singularly, then it wouldn't satisfy the test. Whereas when they combine in that way with the predominant purpose of injuring the claimant, then that will meet the lawful means conspiracy test. Lawful means conspiracy is extremely rare. I think it originated from trade union disputes. It's it's not really used these days. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt. I was actually going to ask the table. I know I'm not here to ask questions, but I'm um, like that. Has anyone actually ever pleaded out a lawful means conspiracy claim? No. Lots lots of shaking heads around the table. It's just spite in the end. I mean, it's, 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 and I think the authorities show that actually most of the judges say it's, it's very rarely used. Mm. Um, it's very rare for people to be that vindictive in the pursuit of their own economic ends, Mm. simply to damage another person. I've had it threatened once, but it, the party threatening it never followed through with that. But, um, I've never used it. 
I think it's rarely pleaded and even less rarely succeeds because you also have the defense, the predominant purpose element. So if your predominant purpose is to further your own interests, which it invariably will be, then that's not the predominant purpose to injure the claimant. That's just to put your interests first. So that's lawful means conspiracy, which is probably dying out based on the people around this table. Well, at least we covered it. <laughs> Going back to unlawful means. So the unlawful means needs to be instrumental in causing the claimant's loss. There has to be a causative link. And there's an instrumentality point, which I think Derek's going to come on to. There also has to be an intention to injure the claimant, which is an element of the tort which remains somewhat in a state of flux. And that claim, the claimant needs to, in fact, suffer damage as a result. The main elements are reasonably clear. It seems to me that conspiracy has, has very much come to the fore in, in recent years. Uh, I mean, if, if, if that's right, Becca, why, why do you think that is? So I've got two theories on this. My first theory is because of the way that the law has developed. I think it's left the talk fairly open, and that's meant that people see it as quite an attractive sort of catch-all pleading, really. My second theory is more tactical. So I think with conspiracy, obviously you need to have two people combining. You only need to have two people but we're increasingly seeing claims with casts of thousands of defendants. And I've been thinking about why that is. I think one of the reasons is you may want to try and seize a favourable jurisdiction, such as the High Court of England and Wales, and therefore you might try and identify an anchor defendant within the, the conspirators. And that might be your way of getting your claim into England and Wales. Another strategic consideration is that you might want to, or you might be concerned to ensure that you get as full disclosure as possible. And again, that feeds into the favourable jurisdiction point and why you choose England and Wales, where you've got very stringent disclosure rules. And as from a claims perspective, you might hope to get some material in support of your claims through disclosure. Equally related to that, you might have a scenario where there's a sort of main defendant and other conspirators involved who might have access to documents. And so that's another reason for joining in as many people as possible. If they remain third parties, then you wouldn't have access to those documents. Whereas if you join them in through the conspiracy case, then again, that might be your route to getting the evidence that you need to prove your case. And finally, it enables you to go after the people with the biggest pockets. Again, it might not be the primary wrongdoer, but by having this sort of cast of lots of people through the conspiracy case, that might be your route to seeking recoveries that might not otherwise be available. And equally, you, you, conspiracy might just fit the facts. There might have just been a conspiracy. I agree with you, but then you know the question of why it's coming to the fore, are there really that many conspiracies going on? You sort of think, I agree with you, in some cases that the, the pleading will fit the facts, but in other cases there might be tactical considerations for, for pleading it in that way. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because sometimes you think perhaps we're shaping the law and sometimes the law is shaping us. So because cases like Krapanov and Ablyazov, you have the extension of what classes as unlawful means for unlawful means conspiracy. In Ablyazov, it was the breach of a freezing injunction. That's an unlawful means. Well, I mean, how many cases have we all worked on where there's been a freezing injunction? That freezing injunction has been breached, but you don't necessarily go away and plead conspiracy off the back of that because somebody has received funds or somebody's not helped to conceal something or hasn't complied. Whereas now you've got that, perhaps that's putting that to the front of people's minds as well. So I think there's there's a cart and horse here a bit, isn't there? Definitely. And there's a, there's a tension, though, is in that, well, many tensions. But one of the points is, of course, we don't have a cause of action that's just fraud. Mm. So most of our causes of action are well, that we have to see misrepresentation and so on, so on and so forth. But one of one of the reasons why it's so attractive to people is it enables them to bring out the overarching theory of, of what they say has happened, both with the central people and perhaps the periphery people and the enablers. So it gives you an overarching story 
And equally, I think another problem in our law is although we have things like dishonest assistance in relation to breach of trust or breach of fiduciary duties, we do not have, unlike in the criminal law, we do not have an aiding and abetting, counselling and procuring accessory liability, which means that it's quite difficult for us to shoehorn where we see wrongdoing other than in this particular way. We have, of course, now joint liability since Fish and Fish and Sea Shepherd sort of started developing that line. And it may well be that that is actually the route down to the route that developed in relation to accessory liability. But you can see why, from a practitioner's point of view, a claimant's point of view, why unlawful means conspiracy has has really come to the forefront, because it actually suits your purposes, given the tools you've got in the box. Mm, I think that's right. I think it's also you were talking about the sort of case theory. Quite often when you when you're pleading these things, there's and you know, I'm almost trying to say this on a secret basis. There's a there's an element of guesswork. As a claimant, you have a fact pattern that you've got, but particularly in fraud cases, quite often if you're either you're you're not going down the pre-action protocol, exchange of letter of claim and see what the other side says, or you've been met with you've been stonewalled in that respect and you've not had any response if you have tried to comply with a protocol you're sometimes trying to make the theory fit the facts without really knowing whether there is a conspiracy there. There's a lot of inference involved, isn't there? Agreed. There's a lot of known knowns and known unknowns. But in particular, in relation to sort of third parties, you're right. You don't know what's necessarily happened. You know that you're going to have to have these people in some shape or form at your trial because you are going to If you don't have, let's say, the periphery people or what we call the enablers there, the person you regard as your primary protagonist is going to be able to say, well, I was told this by them, I was told that by them, and they have their rabbit warrants to go down in a much easier way. So from a claimant's perspective as well, having the entire universe of people that are involved and documentation involved right from the get-go enables you later down the road in real life to really refine what it is that you're saying. What is so interesting, I think, about how cases in real life develop is how claimants actually don't then adjust very readily their case theory based on what they actually do find out in the documentation and what people then say by way of their defences or excuses. I mean, there are certainly pitfalls. I I love this quote from Mr Justice Mann, 2016 case, Mortgage Agency Services, Um, And he criticised the claimant in that case for donning its fraud detection goggles, turning the sensitivity up high and attributing a dishonest motive to every interesting feature in the landscape. So there's a balancing act. There undoubtedly is. And Mrs Justice Cockerell has talked about Macorberism in one of her judgments. I think it's King and Stifle. Macorberism and basically groupthink, captured groupthink on the part of claimants, which sees just conspiracy all and everywhere. And again, as a claimant, your job is to have a tight case theory by the time you get to trial for sure, ideally at the the beginning, but to refine it and not to proliferate it outwards. And again, one of the things that the courts also say, and you see this time and again in the judgments, when a conspiracy case has failed, is they say, well, the more people you say that are involved in this conspiracy, the less likely it is. Now, that is both true and false. You have some very interesting cases with a lot of corporate crime now, I think, where you have corporate motivations involving lots of people and you scratch your head and you say, how is it that they thought it was in the accounting department, thought it was appropriate to sort of on a group basis introduce some fraudulent accounting here? But you do have corporate motivations which actually sort of do cover that. Do you think it's worth just touching on the distinction between people who facilitate as opposed to actually performing an action. So that distinction between perhaps the person in the accounting department who's told to make a payment and who processes the payment and doesn't ask questions, but perhaps wouldn't have asked questions, wouldn't be expected to ask questions, and the person who decides that the payment needs to be made and finds out where that is. Because there's there's that distinction, isn't there? It's not enough to just have facilitated the action. No, that's a really, really important point, I think, because you, there's no liability for being an accessory to facilitate. 
and what I think you're talking about is, is where somebody's just an instrument, an instrument of somebody else. I mean, I often talk about the ringleaders, the deputy, those just obeying orders, uh, you know, and, and, and fool. So you're right. I think you have to look at what it is that somebody's being asked to do and how they should be engaging their mind. Is this just simply an executive job that I'm doing that I'm making a transfer? Is this something where actually I have a responsibility to ask myself further questions about it and its legitimacy, which then leads you on to asking the difficult questions? And then you can be hung for, in a sense, asking the right question, getting an unsatisfactory answer and accepting it. So there's quite an interesting interplay going on there, depending on whether you've got a duty to ask, I think. Yeah, I suppose you've got the distinction between the sort of Nelsonian blindness where you think this looks really dodgy, but don't ask the question because you don't want to know the answer. The asking the questions and ignoring the answer or perhaps just not being party to an agreement and, and genuinely just being a facilitator rather than sort of acting in concert. I think one of the things that I want to sort of pick up on that is really just how wide conspiracy can still be, notwithstanding those points that we have just made. Because obviously you have to have a combination or an agreement or or the phrase that's in it together, which is one that is used a lot. But you don't necessarily need to have the same aim in mind. You can have a sufficient identity of object, but you don't need to have the same object as such. And likewise, in terms of overt acts and concerted action, it's not necessary for you to do, in fact, anything in the course of a conspiracy. So you can have a completely passive conspirator. So, for example, a director in a company who has a duty to speak or duty to stop something. By failing to do something, you have become complicit. So, again, just, just picking up on your point, I think one of those two points show us really just how wide unlawful means conspiracy is. And that's, of course, before we get on to all of the other things about knowledge and intentionality. Now, that's, that's, if I'm not mistaken, Dave, that's a reference to the racing partnership case. Yes, the racing partnership case is really important because I think it's our current best gateway into unlawful means conspiracy and how, it, how it's going to develop or what the tensions are within it. Just before picking up on it, I mean, it, obviously with intentionality, You need a high degree of blameworthiness. That's one of the things that the courts are always referring to as being the overarching reason behind unlawful means conspiracy, because generally we allow people to go out their business, around their business, be competitive, and so on and so forth. At the same time, you need control mechanisms, and the courts are always looking for control mechanisms as to how you stop this becoming an unruly horse, pursuant to which people are liable for the smallest smallest de minimis trivial things that they have done. The racing partnership case is important in two ways. First of all, it's important because it touches upon the unlawful means. Now, we've had an expansion, I think, as Mary has talked about, about the expansion of the unlawful means to to include crimes, potentially breaches of statutory duty, and so on, which we now accepted. And of course, a breach of contract can also be involved as unlawful means. What is interesting in the racing partnership case is that the contract involved was not a contract involving the claimant. Just by way of the factual background on that, the racing partnership were in business of providing information, racing data to online bookies. And they had a contract with a company called Arena who ran race courses. So they were getting their information sort of on the ground from from Arena. Arena also had Tote sort of on their premises as well. And Tote were obtaining data as well. And they had a contract with Arena, but it didn't specify what they could or couldn't do with information that they had obtained. And the Tote were providing that information to the defendants in that case who called it SIS and Ladbrokes and, and, and Betfred. And so the contract at the heart of it that was said to be broken was a contract between Arena and the Tote and not one between either the claimant or the defendant or involving any of those parties. So it's been a really interesting extension in relation to that. The other aspect of that case, which uh, has given rise to a lot of discussion, is the question of whether you need to know that the means are in fact unlawful. 
And this is, a, again, a very important question because, as I said before, I think we've talked about a high degree of blameworthiness being required for unlawful means conspiracy. But if you don't actually know that what you've done is unlawful, then it's hard to square that with that. How do you meet that test? Yeah. Quite. In the Racing Partnership case, Arnold J came down in favour of the possibly the more traditional view, the Belmont Finance and Williams view, which is that you don't need to know. You need, just need to know the facts. You don't need to know actually whether it's lawful or not. And in that case, that was all about a company issuing shares to itself and getting council's advice. And the council's advice was wrong, but it was held to be sufficient in that case. But that was a strict liability offence. I think one of the things that the best points that Lewison says is this, which is in other contexts, for example, dishonest assistance requires dishonesty. So you would expect us to be basically expecting somebody to intend to cause harm. And how can that be compatible ultimately if you don't know that what you're doing is in fact unlawful? There was a split in that case, though, wasn't there? There was a split in the Court of Appeal. That was just one view. That's true. And I think it got permission to go to the Supreme Court, but I don't think... Yes, it did. That's it's right, Supreme... yeah. yeah. Permission was given in May 2022, and there's been no doesn't look like appeal, so it doesn't ahead. look like it's happening. So it's a shame that we won't get clarity on that, I think. Yeah. But one of the things that I picked up in the minutiae of that judgment was Arnold LJ. What he said was that he could be persuaded that if you could show that you positively believed that it was lawful, then that could, assuming the defendant accepts the burden of proof, that could be a defence. And that's and an objective test. That would be an objective test. But I think that what that shows, in a sense, is, is his acknowledgement of the strength of the point, but also concern that actually defendants kind of are seeking to use this particular point as a, as a rabbit hole by which to defend themselves. So in a sense, he's, he's reversing the burden of proof on defendants. So you have to be- show that you with objectively and with good reasons believe that what you were doing was lawful. But that still would, would change the Belmont Finance and Williams case where you've got the council's advice, unless the council's advice is equivocal, I think, and saying, well, on the one hand, on the other. I think the knowledge point, the knowledge versus belief is always an interesting area because, I mean, that there is, there's got to be a few areas, she says, searching her brain for an example, like a breach of fiduciary duty, those sorts of things that we as lawyers are all really comfortable with using. And we throw around these terms, but your man on the Clapham omnibus might not be aware of some sort of a breach. And that actually there should be some leeway, shouldn't there, for some of the more obscure unlawful means to be able to say, well, hang on, I I didn't even realise that that was problematic. Presumably that would be fed into the objective test though, because if you are a professional, then you're held to particular standards. And so objectively, you would be expected to know X, Y, Z was wrong compared to the man on the clap on the Yes. And I think the, the cases sort of draw out a bit this, don't they? Which is, this is the point that ignorance of the law is no defence. So, mm-hmm. so on criminal, so I think the way that it's settling down is that you can be expected to know the criminal law. And indeed, most of us know that you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat, and you shouldn't defraud people. So, I mean, it, it's quite, in that sense, it's, it's quite easy. But once you take possibly a different line in relation to private rights, and whether you know that pri- whether what you should know about private rights. It's certainly an area where I suspect we will see more development. And the yeah, the knowledge belief thing, if that's um, being picked up, I think is probably an area because it feeds into what we were talking about earlier about asking questions you don't know, don't want to know the answers to. Quite, and I think the point that you're bringing forth forensically as practitioners is this. With each defendant, whether they're core, periphery or whoever, you have to start out asking yourself, well, what is it that they knew? What is it that they knew? What are the facts looked at from that person's perspective? What is it that they knew? And from that and that world, you again, what is it that I can infer their intentions might have been, whether they're very much, as you say, they actually knew or it's blind, it's blind eye knowledge and they should have asked questions. They shut their mind to things. 
again, I think the rigor with which one approaches that is, is key, both as a claimant and indeed as a defendant, because as a defendant, you're obviously very conscious about how there are large areas potentially of what's going on, which you don't know, which you don't know, which you should, could, and you shouldn't be held accountable for having known, because you could, for example, have known that there was a plan to do something, but that plan could have equally been performed lawfully as well as unlawfully. So there, are, there is a very good example, isn't it, of where knowledge, in a sense, colours everything. Yeah. It's also, I suppose, there doesn't necessarily only have to have been one conspiracy, uh, that all parties join at the beginning in one happy group of fraudsters deciding what to do and who to damage that actually people can join this along the way as and when they discover the facts and form the intentions, that sometimes you might have an, an original core conspiracy with a group of core conspirators that other people join in along the way. But you'd still have to establish that the particular defendant was responsible for the particular unlawful means, or you could have separate, I suppose you could have separate unlawful means, couldn't you? I mean, within the same fact pattern, people, quite often you find people playing different roles, don't you? You have the introducer and you have the salesman and you have the whatever other roles there are. And those those unlawful means may fall under different categories. You're right. There's an arc that often happens. I mean, we probably need to distinguish, don't we, those which were where actually you've got an obvious conspiracy, like somebody's trying to you know, instituting a cartel or, or, or a VAT fraud, which are plainly frauds from the get-go, and you've got criminal gangs effectively involved in doing that. And then you've got these other things, which often in the commercial context, as you say, do start out, where you have things developing over a period of time, and as you say, pe- people being introduced, and, and again, real questions as to what their knowledge and involvement is, and indeed as to what their motive is, because we haven't yet got to speak about motive. And motive, as we know, is is not necessary to plead in any fraud case, but actually is absolutely critical to any case theory. Yes, it's not it's not a formal requirement, but very often that's the thing you focus on because it tells you so much. I mean, do, do we have any motive war stories that we want to share? Any war stories at all? Well, I think <laughs> I think it's usually usually you're trying to follow the money and you're trying to follow the financial incentives that people have. And the courts have often said, basically, you wouldn't normally assume that somebody getting professional fees would constitute a good reason to moving from you know a, a lifetime of honesty to, to to dishonesty. So there's so money financial incentives are key, and often and I often think that the courts. Although they said that in the Mere Karen Desai case about moving forward, I I do think perhaps that's slightly changing, that actually people might, courts do take a slightly different view on that that point now than they did back in 2008, the post-global financial crisis. I have had a couple of cases, one where I've managed to include in a conspiracy somebody who was a signatory on a binder on an insurance surety bond claim and therefore should have been asking questions but didn't ask questions and we managed to in cross-examination you're sort of asking him at each stage well why did you not do anything and you know where were you when that happened and of course he was down at the pub uh, and, and and in the end I got a judgment which said he did it for a quiet life which I think was one of the most interesting sort of motivations but again it showed that the judge was interested. He had, he had to find out, he had to decide why it was that that person had, had behaved in the way that they had, even though they've got a duty to do stuff. Yes. And, and it demonstrates that people do the wrong thing for, or may do the wrong thing for a whole number of different reasons. Yeah. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Derek, about how wide the scope of this can be. I mean, if for a quiet life, is is a motive that's you know that's that's quite something yes you can often get people who are starstruck i mean that's another good way of cross-examining people you know you're just starstruck by this by this mesmerizing personality to whom you owe your job to whom you owe this that and the other and you just get caught up in the magic of somebody there's quite a lot of that of course in conspiracy cases i think do we want to talk a bit about 
some of the benefits of bringing conspiracy claims. I'm thinking, I'm thinking the sort of damages side, the damages at large. Yes, where you've got fraud. Where you've got a fraud claim, yeah. it really opens up the, the damages which one can seek, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I mean, I, I, on conspiracy, I mean, there is a limit, isn't it? If you're not liable for the damage that's caused by the conspiracy before you joined, but yeah. otherwise you're, you're liable for the whole shooting match. Absolutely. If you're in it at the start... Quite. You can be, and you know, loss of profit, investigation costs, all sorts. It can be, um, can be quite costly yeah, to be a co-conspirator. Quite, and it's primary, it's primary liability as opposed to accessory, which is, as you say, for the very reason you say. So you know, I mean, fraud, un- fraud unravels everything. You're liable for all direct losses, unforeseeable losses, the whole thing. Yeah. Mm. But of course, when we're alleging and pleading fraud, we have to make sure that there's a proper evidential basis for it and we have to set it out specifically and clearly. So it's not something to be done lightly, but we're all familiar with the, the requirements. You need credible material. You do. And you see it being alleged very frequently. You really do. It's amazing quite how many times fraud in its many variety of guises gets pleaded but it's interesting isn't it with conspiracy I I can't remember whether I mentioned it earlier that you quite often at the start of the case you're looking at facts and you're sort of joining the dots as a claimant and you do end up relying on inference quite a bit and obviously you can't plead an inference unless there is a link but there is a bit of that to be done and I think Derek you were saying about people sort of re-evaluating their cases as you go along you get someone's defense in and obviously you test it for credibility and you stress test that you wouldn't necessarily just give up your claim against a party because they've put a defense in but that sort of sometimes there are sometimes out of disclosure from witness evidence people's roles are seen to be different to what you'd originally dynamics in the end yeah are, are, are very different and he always we, puts it more eloquently doesn't he <laughs> i don't think so um so you're, you're right i mean i think that let's just distinguish the, the the pleading stage which is you know the whole I mean, one's always slightly surprised by the extent to which you've got to go plead it properly because it's not just credible material, but but you've got to plead the primary facts, you've got to plead the knowledge and intention, and you've got to plead the inferences. So otherwise, you're going to come unstuck pretty quickly with requests for RFI and strikeouts and all the rest of it. And 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 in a sense, if you haven't got a coherent case theory in your pleading, you should go home. You should really go home. It's quite a different thing by the time you get, of course, to the point of establishing the fraud during the course of, 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 of the trial. And I think there have been some developments, both in, in the Ford context. The Bank of St. Petersburg and the Arkansas case, I think from last year, is quite an important case in terms of once you get to trial, the court isn't necessarily looking for the irresistible inference that there's only one answer to this question. It's looking again on the balance of probabilities as to which in this set of situation, this circumstances, is the most likely outcome. And in particular, I think in conspiracy cases, going back to where we were talking about, that where you've got, let's say, 10 or 11 suspicious features to it, that each of their own, none of them we would say, well, that's not a clincher, that's not quite a clincher, that's nearly there. But what about the fact that there are 10 of these and what's the accumulative thing? Yeah. And I think I think it's the wood for the trees point that often that judges are now much more aware of than perhaps they, they, they or rather have been a couple of judgments about it. But, but it, 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 it's a common trap and it's obviously a, it's obviously a device that when one's, that defendants seek to deploy all the time, which is, oh, look at it, salami slice it and just look at it in very short time segments. Whereas in fact, you've got to look at it in that way and also holistically. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The sort of circumstantial evidence being cumulative, 
but it is very tempting, isn't it, to look at each one of those, particularly if, particularly if you're acting for a defendant, and say, well, no one of those is conclusive. No one of those points. You wouldn't be able to base liability on any one of those points and ignore the fact that there are 10 or 20 of these which all point to some sort of involvement with intentions and means and, and all the lot. Agreed. And that's what cross-examination is all about, isn't it? It's sort of you, you're looking at each of those and trying to work out. But you're talking about cross-examination there. So in that instance, you're not really testing your case theory until you're cross-examining your witness, at which point you, what, you retire and, and replead. Oh, in terms of, of, of develop, the development of your yeah. case theory. I think it's very difficult. Yeah. I'm not, I've sort of set it up as a sort of bit of a purist, you know, you ought to be prepared to adapt, but I think it is very difficult to adapt and you want to keep all your options open. And of course, all the interorum comments from the judges at the end of cases are all when, when a case has been completely lost and say, you shouldn't have pleaded this and you shouldn't, you shouldn't have kept your options open. You should have narrowed it down. That's all with 2020 hindsight vision, isn't it? So I think if you lose a fraud case and you pursued it, you can expect pretty sharp treatment from the judiciary in terms of costs and judgments and all of that sort of stuff. But it always looks after the event in the judgment like a one-way street, doesn't it? Whereas in real life, there's much more liveliness and alternative possibilities and theories and things. Yes, it depends on the attitude of the judge. I, I had a case where the judge was very clear that he was going to try the case as pleaded. And by day one of the trial, it was too late to amend. That was it. So they just had to make the best of the evidence that came out. But that's not that's not always the case. I think, Becca, you, you were telling me about a case where the claimants were invited to amend. Exactly, yeah. So day one of trial, they were told, I think it was the judges said the pleading was completely unworkable and they had to go away within 24 hours and come back and replead. And I think even then it didn't work sufficiently to, to her satisfaction. And they, um, I think in their judgment, she says something like, I just had to work from the the written openings and closings in the end and did her best as you know Derek said it's it isn't an uh it's hard with these claims isn't it to be very very precise I think particularly from the claimant's perspective and it is a high risk strategy I've seen that mentioned a lot of times in judgments where it has you know the claims have not succeeded it's then said to have been a high risk strategy and you're liable for indemnity costs it seems to be almost the default rule now it's hard to sort of give clients any cons- any sort of certainty on that, really, isn't it? When you're when you're pursuing a conspiracy case, because it, it essentially all comes down to the judge's interpretation of what's happened. Mm. It's interesting, actually. I've I recently had a case where on wasn't the first day of trial, but it was quite early on in a four week trial. The judge said, actually, I think there's another there's another grounds for there's another unlawful means that you haven't pleaded. You might want to go away and think about pleading some breaches of um, FUSMA. So he did. We amended the pleading mid-trial. Oh, well, of, of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. When you're being invited to do so, what, what fool, you were mentioning for the fool earlier, what fool would say no? Yeah. But you're a bit fearful of it being a trap, aren't you, as well? I, I mean, olive branches are sort of... But in the situation you're, you're describing is sounds, sounds good, but in other cases it can be a bit of a trap, can't it? You know, the judge saying, "Well, do you let me give you forty eight hours to decide whether you want to whether you want to change this or not?" Because then I'm 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 drawing a line in the sand at that point. But that doesn't then stop somebody saying the other side saying, "Well, later on or an appeal that." You should, the judge shouldn't have allowed that to happen. It's way, way too late in the day. And my sense, again, I'm not, is that the court of appeal take a much more stringent view of these sorts of things than perhaps trial judges do who get slightly drawn into it, into dealing with the thing on the ground and maybe more amenable to it. I don't know. It depends very much on the judge and how substantive the changes are as opposed to cosmetic, I think, sort of pleading out a further inference. We're talking very generally here, but if you're just pleading out a further inference from material that's there, really, why are we getting too upset and hot and under the collar about that? But if it's it's something that's completely different and not covered in the evidence already, you can see why people would be very, very upset about that sort of thing. It can be a trap. You can have downsides as well because it may disrupt the case theory that you were running up to that point and you'll have prepped the cross or someone will have prepped the cross and you have to 
rewrite the script, literally, then in a big trial that can be very difficult. And, and it can be concerning because it sort of suggests that the judge isn't with you on, on yes, your current case. on your main case too, yeah. Yeah, but it also, that's what makes it interesting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't. You wouldn't. It just. It's just a reason not to have prepped your cross too early. <laughs> Indeed. So we, we've talked about conspiracy claims quite a lot from a claimant's perspective. Is there anything in particular that defendants should be alive to? I think it's really challenging for defendants because you're essentially seeking to prove a negative, and so I think one of the important things that a defendant can do is to show the court that you've fully cooperated. You've given as much disclosure as you can. You've given a full account in your witness evidence. I think witness credibility is very, very important and not something to be taken lightly. You know, if you sort of come to court and throw your hands up and say, oh, this is all completely ridiculous, I can't think that would go down very well. It's not something I'd recommend my clients to do. The other thing I say from a defendant's perspective is that summary judgment and strikeout is very challenging because these sorts of claims are very fact-specific. So I've actually got a, a war story on this one, and it's related to the judgment that I mentioned a moment ago. So a number of years ago, I acted for an individual defendant to a conspiracy claim. And again, there were multiple defendants, and we were facing quite a long commercial court trial. And so there was only about a handful of emails get, you know, of evidence that sort of linked him to the conspiracy. And so to try and avoid the costs of having to sit through a very long commercial court trial, we thought we'd have a crack at summary judgment. And so we did. And we were before uh, Sir Ross Cranston, and he gave our application very short shrift. And it was probably one of the worst days in court I've ever had. Um, even the other side's barrister at the end of the day, after the, the claimant got indemnity costs, the other side's barrister turned around to the client sat next to me, who was sort of slumped in his chair, looking very dejected. He said, I'm sorry, it's not, it's not personal. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so we went on and we went through the lengthy commercial court trial and it's got a good outcome because we won. So there was a happy ending. But it, summary judgment is very challenging because, you know, with that application, the judge just took one look at it and said, I want to, you know, I can't, I can't strike this out. You need to hear the evidence. The witness needs to come to court. We need to hear his account of things. Yeah, unfortunately, the, the um, and we eventually got our costs, but the claimant was a, a New York entity, so we had to spend many years trying to get the costs back with the help of some New York lawyers. You talked a little bit about the correct approach and that you wouldn't recommend to your clients saying, well, this is, this is ridiculous. Now, now, there will be claims that are completely misconceived. What's the best approach to take when, at least from your client's perspective, um, they don't get over the threshold of liability, but there's, for want of a better phrase, dirty laundry. There's maybe been some peripheral wrongdoing or even dishonesty. Is there a right approach to take? Should you face up? Should you do a mea culpa? Yeah, I don't know if it's the right approach, but I would say just absolutely that. Do a mea culpa, fess up, hold your hands up tell the court exactly what's happened. If you try and shy away from these things or try and sugarcoat it or try and pretend that what you did was was it okay, I think that's likely to go down quite badly. Credibility issues as well. Exactly. I, I agree. Realism, from a defendant's perspective, it, it is, is absolutely key. It's absolutely key. You are, you are trying to be realistic with the court now as to why you're in this situation. And it may have been, and again, you're, you're trying to distinguish, in the end, behaviour that is not, let's say, dishonest, but, but may have been negligent or may have involved innocent oversights or may have been just very foolish or strung along by people, but not actually ultimately dishonest. So I do, I do think a cards-on-the-table approach is generally a better way if, you've, if, if, if that case is available to you. And likewise, in relation to sort of innocence being clear about what you're knowledge and intent and limitations were because the danger uh, uh, the other danger that defendants have is, is that claimants with a fair wind end up trying to aggregate all the bits of knowledge that that sort of exist between defendants and lump them all together so that you get the classic two plus two equals five so what you don't want to do as a defendant is to end up 
just being sort of part of a number of people who the court looks as being tarred by the same brush. I think that's a really good point. I had a case recently where this, where the same firm of solicitors were acting for four parties who were all accused of being part of a conspiracy. I mean, it doesn't look good at the outset with having the same representation. And I'm, I'm asking this, and it's genuinely a question. What about think, something like mediation, some sort of settlement negotiations for the defendant who can, who perhaps has some risks? But, but feels like they've got a decent chance of showing they're not part of a conspiracy because the risk to the claimant of going all the way to trial, this collapsing on cross-examination is always there on a conspiracy claim. We've talked about the idea that you set your case theory up and that it doesn't always, sometimes it's, it's not really until cross-examination that you really get to stress test it. So distinguishing oneself from the others as a defendant and coming forward and sort of trying to buy your way out of it, that there must be good opportunities for those sorts of discussions when there are conspiracy claims. So two points. I think settlements and conspiracy claims can be challenging because of the nature of the allegations are so serious. You can have a tendency for the defendant to want to go to court and clear their name. And secondly, when you've got multiple defendants and you've got one of them looking to settle, you have to be alive to the risk that the other defendants might join you back in. Mm. And so you would need to get some kind of indemnity from them or from the claimant, but you wouldn't want to, it would be a bit of a, uh, an empty settlement if you successfully settled with the claimant, but then found yourself back yeah. where you were. Yeah. Those are really good points. And, and claimants are often also trying to get you, in a sense, as a defendant, to still turn up and give evidence, aren't they? I mean, that's often what, because obviously they need, they, they sometimes need the evidence in order to be able to, to, to deal with a particular point. So it's fraught with difficulty. Yes. And I suppose if you're out of it and you don't turn up at court, everyone's going to blame you, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> it was them. But but thanks for pushing that um, agenda, Mary. You know, you're, you're quite right to explore alternative avenues to... You just sort of think that sometimes if a claimant is running a risky case or the, the, the case strategy looks like it's got some holes in it, there's sometimes, there are sometimes ways through. There are very rarely cases where you'd say to a client, oh, you absolutely should run this all yes. the way to trial. I think another factor is defendants may have insurance and if you have a no-fault settlement, then that insurance may respond. Mm. Whereas if you're pursuing defendants and the allegations are made good, then the insurance won't be available. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So the past few years have seen conspiracy coming very much to the fore. What does the future hold? Well, I mean, the criticism that's made of conspiracy, unlawful means conspiracy, is it sort of is its width, isn't it? And that it's sort of, it's like a bagpuss, you know, it can be really stretched, you know, it's a fat old cat, you know, sort of that Emily loves. We all practitioners love it. Stretching that analogy a bit too far. But um, in, in, in but, case anyone wasn't clear about who bagpuss was or what. <laughs> it's a TV program from the 1970s. So it, it, it's its width and it can capture too much. Uh, and it doesn't have enough control mechanisms in it. There are several schools of thought, sort of, there's the Lord, I think it's the Lord Hoffman view, which is, well, we just have to accept it as being there and it exists and it's a useful, it's a useful cause of action in certain cases because it does capture what you're trying to capture, which is sort of blameworthy conduct in a particular, which may or may, or may not a particular form but it, it is useful and it exists and, and it should be should be retained and then you I, if I, you get the you know I can put, call them the theorists who are really trying to rationalize our economic torts uh, and there's a lot to be said for that as well and who see the development of from OBG and Allen the development of causing loss by unlawful means as being important and creating a, a tort as well as, a, as well as procuring breach of contract as being sort of a useful primary liability uh, a cause of action. And at the same time, 
the development of joint liability from Fisher Fish and the, and the Sea Shepherd and, and, and that developing out to being accessory liability. And, and if that were to happen, well, why would we need this? Why on earth do we still need this sort of 18th, 19th century cause of action, which, which has a lot of holes in it and allows a lot of people potentially to be captured in it, who shouldn't perhaps be captured. It's interesting, isn't it? When you see, and you mentioned this earlier, Derek, when you see breach of fiduciary duty or breach of trust being alleged, you tend to see dishonest assistance going with that. You don't tend to see conspiracy. So there's conspiracy isn't necessarily a catch-all. No, I mean, people often, you plead, tend to plead, if you're pleading a conspiracy, that's the overarching thing. And then alternatively, it's dishonest assistance. It tends to be the way that you go with that, isn't it? Yeah, or knowing receipt or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But again, this goes back a little bit to what we were saying, which is that we still don't have a proper aiding and abetting, cancelling and procuring sort of accessory liability. And therefore, that's why people need to ramp up into conspiracy some of the time, potentially. How do you see the law developing if you were to, if you're a betting man? Um, <laughs> well, I am a betting man. I, I, I am a betting man and I like to go to the races. I actually see the law taking a, a more restrictive approach. And for, for my hapenies worth, I think, as I said earlier, I think the Lewison position on the need to know that the means are unlawful is the way that the law should go in terms of its development. I feel rather uncomfortable with the idea that you you, you don't need to know that you're on, that the unlawful means is unlawful as a cause of action in this particular way. The only other thing I very suddenly thought of, one of the other sort of alternatives, the two one th- Section 213 Insolvency Act, Fraudulent Trading, um, so anyone, any person who is knowingly party to the carrying on of a fraudulent business, and you've had the tradition financial services and Bilter, where they looked at what the scope of that, and that it wasn't just managers of the company, it could actually be third parties. So you have these sort of statutory conspiracy almost, but built in in different sections. Now, I don't know whether the more that they develop, the less you'll need the conspiracy claims on unlawful means conspiracy. But it strikes me that that's a statutory version. You know, there needs to be an intent to defraud creditors or another fraudulent purpose. Someone needs to have participated in that and done so knowingly. So it's it's not dissimilar to the, the sorts of things we're talking about in unlawful means. Well, there you have it, a wide-ranging discussion on conspiracy. Many thanks to Becca Hogan of Signature Litigation, Mary Young of Kingsley Napley, and Derek Dale, KC of Fountain Court, my co-conspirators for this episode. I hope our listeners enjoyed listening to our discussion as much as we enjoyed having it. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. 